0: Hello, and welcome to the BMJ podcast. This episode is focusing on COVID in South Asia. I'm Cameron Mabasi, executive editor of the BMJ, and I'm delighted to have with me today Professor Srinath Reddy, who is president of the Public Health Foundation of India. Biraj Swain, who works in global development in Asia and East Africa, and she's also a senior media critic. And finally, Buddha Basnet who's director of the Oxford University Clinical Research Unit in Nepal. Welcome to all of you. Thank you for sparing the time today. Now, South Asia has had a turbulent pandemic, some vastly differing experiences across the region, but certainly some common themes as well. Today, we're going to focus in particular on how events have unfolded uh, in India and Nepal and what we can learn from the past 18 months. There are many, many issues to address. What we'd really like to understand from our guest today is what's their experience of the pandemic and what are the key points in their minds that we need to reflect on. Shunath, tell us how the pandemic has unfolded in your experience um, and what it means for public health in India.
1: I believe that uh, as far as the pandemic is concerned, India experienced it differently in both the waves, one in 2020 and one in 2021. Uh, There were common features, but there were also substantive differences, both in the magnitude of uh, the pandemic, as well as the nature of response and the conditions that actually preceded the waves. Uh, So we have a lot of learnings from each one of them, but one common feature that has emerged is the recognition that unless you have an efficient and equitable health system functioning predictably in a steady state without a public health emergency, you will not be able to generate a swift and strong surge response when challenged by any public health emergency. And that learning has finally percolated into both the public as well as into the policymaker consciousness only question is whether we will be applying that awareness in the right manner, making the right decisions with the right priorities, or we may be actually shopping for the wrong priorities.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very important point. And in fact, actually, Srinath, that's something that resonates, I think, with most places. I, mean, I can certainly say that resonates with how th- events unfolded, even in the UK. What do you think, if I can follow up, In terms of concrete actions to build a stronger public health or infrastructure and a stronger health service, baseline health, population health, um, what's being done or what's being talked about that's going to be done differently now in India? Well, in the
1: beginning of the first wave, as elsewhere in the world, the preoccupation was mainly with advanced hospital care. The ventilator became the visible symbol of a country's response to the pandemic. We realized later on that that was not what was most needed. We recognized that even secondary care with oxygen supplies being assured was important. But even more than that, the need for a good primary healthcare infrastructure where you could get early identification of persons with symptoms on the basis of what we can call syndromic surveillance, of getting them promptly tested, referred to the hospital if they needed hospitalized care or provided supportive and supervised home care if they could actually be managed at home, contact tracing and even dispelling some of the fear and stigma. All of these required very efficient primary healthcare services. Yeah. And given the fact that the pandemic either entered or emerged in its most fierce form in the initial stages in the urban areas, particularly in the metropolitan areas with international airports, not having a good urban primary health care cost us a lot. So I think the recognition has finally come that you cannot only depend upon uh, tertiary care. You cannot only depend upon advanced private hospital care with uh, corporate hospitals in the big cities. You need to build a viable primary healthcare infrastructure, both in rural and urban areas, and have it well connected to other levels of care. But you cannot have a lopsided healthcare system, which only depends upon a private sector dependent uh, uh, tertiary care.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, clearly, I'm aware, and many people will be aware that you and, and others have been advocating for that kind of focus for, for many, many years. So, if nothing else, that is a that is an important next step, an important development for healthcare in India. I guess what I'm what I'm looking for is, in terms of concrete policy changes, initiatives, have, have any been signaled now that will help achieve what you just described, better primary care, better urban primary care, better baseline population health?
1: Well, things have started moving in that direction, I'm happy to say, So mm. we still have to see the full results of yeah. uh, those initiatives. Yeah. Uh, even before the pandemic struck, the 15th Finance Commission, which usually at five yearly intervals, decides on what proportion of uh, resources should go to the states from the tax revenues, and what proportion should be allocated to the centre, and decides on some of the inter-state priorities. Uh, had recommended the first time ever, with a special chapter on health, that India's health system needed far greater strengthening than it had at present, mm. and it emphasized, thanks to several of our interventions, that primary care should be prioritized and strengthening of secondary care in district hospitals should be prioritized. Yeah. But then yeah. the pandemic struck even before the report was actually finally submitted. And then taking the leaning, uh, learnings from the first wave, uh, the Finance Commission then revised its report. It emphasized all of these. It also emphasized for decentralized of provisioning of financial resources to Panchayat Raj, which are the village local bodies, and to the municipal corporations, which are the urban local bodies with a decentralized governance and uh, fiscal uh, provision. But more importantly, they also said they should be connected to strengthened district hospitals. And it, they also said that critical care capacity should be created. Uh, One health program should be strengthened. And surveillance systems, which were considered to be weak, now needed much greater revamping. So many of the lessons of the first wave were already incorporated into the recommendations of the 15th Finance Commission. Okay. And lo and yeah. behold, when the second wave struck, the need for all of these became even more vividly apparent. And now yeah. I believe the government of India is now coming forth with a much more comprehensive uh, bill or uh, act, Uh, and a scheme, rather, uh, in which we are going to be seeing many of these connected elements emerging uh, with much greater strengthening of primary care, of secondary care at district hospitals, creation of critical care capacity, and uh, also investment in human resources for health, and one more neglected component, which is citizen engagement, Hmm. which was missing almost entirely in the first wave. In the second wave, it was notional. But now they've realized that citizen engagement and community mobilization is also critical. And now they're trying to incorporate elements of that as well in the
0: new scheme. Thank you, Sunath. We'll come back to some of those uh, issues uh, later on in the conversation. But on that particular point about citizen engagement, I'd like to bring in Biraj. Uh, Biraj, tell us a little bit about what's been the experience of citizens. You can't speak for everybody, obviously. But you know, what's been the experience of citizens um, throughout the past 18 months?
2: I understand this is the first uh, uh, program podcast PMJ is recording after the deadly second wave in India. And m- I lost my brother in the second wave. All of us fell to the virus and my bro- we lost my brother. And he was less than two years older to me. So that's a very young age to go. His name mm. is Biplab Swain. I think every single victim needs to be recorded. Every single memory needs to be recorded. And that's our only tribute to, against this collective amnesia. So about citizens' engagement, before that, can I just jog our collective memory a bit? Um, I think if, if history is going to be written about how Indian pandemic response was, first, it had the harshest lockdown with the least public-financed relief, with a grand notice of just four hours. Second, this was also a time when the mainstream media communalized the virus and weaponized it against the minority and vulnerable community from Tabliki Jamaat to many others. Third, this was also the era of data fudging from sheeting up and covering crematoria so that the numbers of the dead are not counted, to actually undercounting and underreporting the dead, to actually encouraging super spreader events, we've seen all of it. But we've also seen some stellar journalism in terms of organizations like Danik Bhaskar, Wire, Scroll, many organizations going to actually the crematoria and counting the body bags instead of publishing like stenographers, the... the, um, uh, uh medical bulletins so i hope when this history of this particular pandemic is written all of this is recorded also this is also the time. This is uh, it's it's over 18 months, over a year and a half that India is under two of the most stringent laws, the Epidemiology Act and the uh, Disaster Management Act. They give phenomenal powers to the administration and to the government, but we have seen those phenomenal powers being used to again target. So these laws were again weaponized against the citizens rather than the. Uh, uh, so uh, you know. R- very simple things like price capping, stopping price gouging of essential tests, medical procedures, uh, uh, medicines, essential drugs. Instead of doing that, most of the states actually resorted to this act to target the citizens. So talking about citizens engagement extremely important public information was withheld. We saw a revival of censorship. We, we saw targeting of Indian journalists who were doing phenomenal stellar work around reporting. And we also saw uh, a complete powerlessness, especially the se- second wave, which almost converted the entire country into a giant crematoria. Me, with all my privilege, could not, while I could access the hospital, I could access the ICU bed. I could not save my brother. And there are multiple failures in the way that I can go about, but I don't want to talk about the personal uh, case study. I want to talk about Mm -hmm. how the super spreader event of election rally festivals like Kumbh Mela were done during the double mutant Delta virus B. One, six, one, seven, when all the medical advice, the task force advice was against it and how it aided and abetted a virulent virus to spread and it took so many in its way. So I think, I hope when the when the medical history, the medical anthropology of this particular pandemic is written, all of this is recorded. Um, going back to your specific questions about citizen engagement, I think I, I really, I mean, Dr. Reddy has been a rock star. We've all looked up to him, but I genuinely hope a lot of, The um, green shoots in terms of uh, fixing the system, fixing primary care, uh, bringing in more accountability, making it more accountable to the citizens, I really hope some of it really starts happening. As of now, like I said, two of the laws, the most draconian law, the Epidemiology Act and the Disaster Management Act, are actually being invoked at the drop of a hat to target the citizens rather than actually build more uh, accountability towards the citizens. So um, uh, I think we still have a long way to go, especially in the context that our budgetary allocations enough has been written in British Medical Journal about the budgetary allocation Mm. of Indian GDP to health, the the, uh, doctor to the missing doctors, the missing nurses in the system, 600,000 doctors missing to 2 million nurses missing as per the Centre for Disease Dynamics and Economic Policy and multiple other uh, researchers will tell the gaping hole and we need to um, and and then we talk about insurance I think the other thing about citizens and public financing of this health has been this insurance based fetish and this has been almost like a war crime the overcharging the complete um, uh-uh. A complete uh, failure of uh, insurance circulation authorities <laughs> in payment of treatment care, and also the lack of ability of uh, patients to access insurance at the same time. So I, I heard this brilliant examples yeah. without a functioning infrastructure, drugs, uh, and. Uh, healthcare professionals, when you give any kind of insurance amount, either public financed or self-financed, it is actually giving a lot of data into a feature phone. It is absolutely pointless. And I think this has also been one of the, uh, the the breakdown of the insurance system is also something that we witnessed in the last uh, one and a half years. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Birash, thank you for that very heartfelt uh, explanation of events. And obviously we're very sorry about your personal loss. uh, uh, And we wish you and your family well. Uh, What you've offered is a very powerful critique of the political decision making uh, during the last 18 months. Now, of course, India is not alone where there has been heavy criticism of how politicians have handled uh, the pandemic. Uh, what what do you think was do you think there's been any realization that some of those decisions were the wrong ones uh that they ended up harming the population that they were politically driven has has that has that realization changed in the sense that we need to prioritize health rather than our political ambitions or the what we perceive to be the financial uh you know uh, objectives of, of of the state
2: uh, voting for health and does health will health become a major issue in the uh, political manifesto? One really hopes so. Um, there are two elections now around the corner, major elections, so I'm really hoping that we will be citizens will be voting for health and political parties will be putting that in the manifesto. I just also wanted to tell uh, in the conversations, especially in the alternative media in the digital media space where a lot of Uh, Fearless journalism is happening at this point of time. There has been comparator comparator with, let's say, Sri Lanka. I know we're not going to be talking deep deep diving into Sri Lanka, Mm -hmm. but Sri Lanka actually ordered Pfizer vaccine for the entire population. And Sri Lanka also invests a lot more than India does in terms of GDP ratio into health. Bangladesh gave about a week notice, prior notice, before it shut down, whereas we got a grand total of four hours to shut down. And you saw biblical Mm. proportions of workers, migrant workers, walking, children, elderly women walking, trudging back home without public transport. So there Mm. are comparators with your neighbors, neighbors who have done, handled some part of the pandemic way better than you have. So there are lessons to be learned over there. Apples for apples, like to like comparison. Going forward... (laughs) Do we think, I think one of the most important things that has happened is that uh, 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 COVID has been the most important story in the last year and a half. Let's not forget that India has one of the maximum per capita penetration of media, be it television, be it newspaper. And this is also a country where television and newspaper are doing fairly well. So I think uh, increasingly, Our only hope is if citizens demand better reportage, better journalism and front pages and and health does not appear in the magazine section, in the lifestyle section, but in the front page, in the public finance, in the editorial section. So have we seen some of that? Yes, we have seen some of that. But are we there yet? I don't think we are there yet, but but I really hope that's going to be the bulwark of of, a the citizens and the fourth pillar of democracy reclaiming public health and the importance of public health and, and, and analyzing, for example, all the, all the 15th Finance Commission measures that uh, Professor Reddy listed out. If some of that are the, their uh, implementation, budget allocation appears in the first page, in the second page, in, and, and there is critical analysis and there's, there's questioning of the powers that be. I would imagine it will also start appearing in the political manifesto. So this is all umbilically connected and one can really hope and one can really work towards it. Yeah.
0: Okay, great. Uh, Biraj, thank you. Uh, Srinath, is there any, any of those points you want to pick up on uh, in relation to what Biraj has said?
1: I agree with uh, what she has said. I mean, we should have ensured that during the first lockdown itself, that it was much better handled. Firstly, I don't think we needed an all India lockdown all at once, mm. because our caseload at that time was fairly small and many parts of India would have been very minimally affected. We should have staggered it, uh, firstly picking up the large metros where the virus was now entered and was actually emerging as a problem and then let the rural areas continue with their work and some of the other states which were less affected to continue. And if the epidemic appeared to be spreading, then we should have handled those differently. Secondly, there should have been a far longer notice for the lockdown so that people Mm. could have relocated, their lives would not have been in a way put in such grave jeopardy because of the suddenness of the lockdown. So many of these things should have been handled much, much better. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, And uh, I believe that it's important for us to have good data, reliable, valid data. Uh, and in a federal structure where it is important that the states take a lot of initiative, I think while it was necessary to have the Epidemic Act and the National Disaster Management Act to get a coordinated response in the initial stages, Mm. Still, much of the decision making would have to be left to the states with central support. To some extent, policy coherence should be established at the central level. Planning should be done at the state capital level. But decentralized implementation, that to data driven decentralized implementation, should be at the district level. Okay. Yeah. And with people partnered public health. So without those elements, you cannot have an all India response, which is
0: straight jacketed as a uniform response. And we'll be back to talk more about that in a moment. As a healthcare professional, keeping up with the latest evidence-based medicine is more important now than ever before with the COVID-19 pandemic. That's why BMJ Best Practice is free to all NHS staff in England, Scotland and Wales. With fast access to the latest clinical guidance anywhere, anytime, BMJ Best Practice will enable you to treat patients with confidence. As well as COVID-19 treatments, you can access over a thousand topics across 32 clinical specialities, with step-by-step guidance on diagnosis, prognosis, treatment and prevention, all structured around the patient consultation. To create your free account, visit bmj.com/ukaccess. Funded by Health Education England, NHS Education for Scotland, and NHS Wales. Well, while we're on that, I mean, one, one issue I was going to raise, which is some states, as ever, have done better than others. Um, I mean, Kerala has had a, you know, its response has been in numbers, at least from what you can see, has probably been more effective. What are the features, do you think, Srinath and, uh, and Biraj, of, of the places that apparently have, have, have responded better? What have they done differently? Biraj, I think you want to comment.
2: Um, so Kerala, I think Maharashtra in terms of its reportage, uh, Delhi also did a fairly good job of reportage uh, in yes. terms of numbers. Kerala, in terms of pandemic response from quarantining to the kind of public financed relief support, they actually reached out to the children because children were locked out of midday meal of essential nutrition services, the early child development care and essential nutrition services. They had one of the most nutritious, most diverse uh, relief package of food aid to be given. And they were not capping it at you know, above poverty line, below poverty line. Mm. So there's a lot in terms of what the imagination, I think it is a lot about imagination. If you're, if you're public finance and your public policy is driven by solidarity and kindness and my brother taught me kindness is probably the most sexiest Mm. attribute but I think if, if your public policy is driven by solidarity and kindness the kind of pandemic relief in terms of from quarantining to giving essential nutrition services at the door to actually doing very stringent testing tracing and treatment to uh, providing food aid and food relief and not having this artificial above uh, poverty line, below poverty line, because let's not forget that too many middle class also fell through the cracks and became precarious mm. because they started losing jobs. Pandemic mm-hmm. was also used as a pretext. Some of the corporates could not, maybe had real problem, but some of them actually used it as a pretext to either slash salaries or just just fire people without consequences and our, mm. our so-called massive relief never gave a relief for direct cash in hand to ramp up the demand. So uh, Kerala, uh, not just in terms of data testing, tracing, treatment, but also everything else that goes with pandemic relief, the socio-economic determinants, uh, I think is 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 a benchmark. Uh, Maharashtra in terms of, again, uh, um, uh, data reporting, testing, and not fudging data because I think uh, at this point of time if you did the bare minimum of not fudging data not not closing up your crematorium I think that's, that's actually a service so a bar is so low that that has become a service right Delhi yeah. also did the same thing um, uh, so uh, I think these three my hometown, where I am here right now in Orissa, is also considered a standout. But now that I'm here, I do think there are so many things which you could have been done better. Um, uh, but that's another conversation for another yeah. day.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. Well, well, yeah, perhaps we'll talk about Orissa another time. Thanks, Viraj. Uh, Sunath, anything to add on that about the region? About, well, what, what have some regions done yeah. that have helped them respond more effectively? Well, I I think uh,
1: some of the sub regions, uh, including Odisha, I believe, has done better than, and they've done better than some of the other states in India. Uh, Tamil Nadu and Kerala always had fairly strong health systems to begin with, Mm. particularly primary health care. So for them to gear up their responses was not very difficult. But they brought in the community engagement as well as the social solidarity factor reasonably well. Kerala more than even Tamil Nadu. Yeah. Uh, some of the other states which also are functioning with reasonably efficient health systems like Karnataka, Andhra Pradesh also did better than some of the North Indian and Central Indian states. Mm-hmm. Uh, some states like Himachal Pradesh, which are also invested in strengthening their health systems did reasonably well too. Okay. Uh, yep. There have been differences among states and that's why it's a very important. Difference.
2: I said perhaps you can also tell all of us which are the states which actually did a price capping of essential tests and services and medical procedures. I think that's also important. We should give them a hat tip.
0: Can you can you explain what that is? I think people listening may not understand what a price cap is and what that means. See, uh, the,
1: the problem here was... The private sector was substantially present in many of these large metropolitan areas to provide hospitalization support, particularly where advanced care was required. And in the absence of good primary health care, many people were making a beeline there. The government facilities were flooded and the private sector actually started also making a huge profit by charging very heavily. So some states have actually imposed price caps on how much the private sector could charge. And then that later on came in handy also for the vaccines, but particularly in terms of hospitalized care, it became very essential. And the absence of a universal health coverage system became one of the biggest obstacles to efficient and equitable and empathetic healthcare services during this pandemic. And if anything was underscored, we required that attention to universal health coverage as an important priority, along with, of course, all the
0: social determinants of health, which also need yep. to support health. Good, thank you, Shana. At this point, I'd like to bring in um, Buddha Basne from Nepal. Buddha, thank you for uh, for, for being patient. Uh, now, now, Nepal has a long border with India. It's a very difficult border to. Um, to secure in this in in, in essence so in in essence Nepal I think and India share health uh, issues very closely how's how's the experience been uh, in your country
3: so thank you very much Kumran for this opportunity and it's always nice to be involved with the BMJ and our relationship goes decades back so this is always nice to reunite can you hear me okay I mean, OK, so so, you know, absolutely. The, we tracked India in terms of infection, in terms of how overwhelming the COVID-19 um, infections, uh, you, you know, happened here. And, and most of the things that that the previous speakers have said apply to Nepal. Uh, what I wanted to bring up, you know, it's kind of uh, like like almost like, a, so what did this pandemic do in terms of, you know, I mean, hard to believe is there's a silver lining in terms of research, you know, and, and I am referring to randomized controlled trials. We in Nepal became very lucky to be aligned with Oxford University's Recovery International Trial, which you awarded that paper as the best paper, you know, the BMJ award. So, I, I think was well deserved. I, I just want to say that Nepal uh, in Nepal several hospitals like uh, now I believe about five hospitals have, have you know uh, contribute the largest number of uh, patient uh, enrollment outside of the UK. And, and what this has done, so this is a silver lining because randomized control trials done properly, you know, like where in, in a paperless fashion where you're aligned with a prestigious institution. This has like led to tremendous capacity building. So I'm saying nothing about, you know, the, the usefulness of such a data, the generalizability of, of data that otherwise would be like maybe uh, limited to the UK. So I, I just wanted to, you know, in all this doom and gloom, some good things were also are happening right now okay we'll come back to um,
0: uh, that in more detail I I think uh, as well um, Buddha I just wanted to ask you there before we come back to the research Srinath very clearly explained that there's been a realization in, in India well I mean not for everybody because people like Srinath and others have been arguing for a strong uh, primary healthcare system for investment in universal healthcare uh, for, for for many years. Do you think that realization has also struck Nepal that the the kind of health infrastructure, apart from the capacity to support the research, the health infrastructure, public health, primary care, that needs to be strengthened.
3: You know, I mean, I'd like to go one step further beyond universal healthcare. I mean, this is something this this region cries for. There's just no, you know, there's there's the, the, there's no two ways about this. But I'd like to add something else. You know, I think that's also struck me. I think there should also be uh, you know, universal basic income. Just the poverty here is tremendous. All this money, you know, that these, uh, you know, this is, so if you just hand out, you know, cash transfers, I think will make a difference in this part of the world. So I think yeah. we should go beyond the universal healthcare to universal basic income, you know, and I think that that, that will make a difference.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a very good and important <laughs> point. But just to go back to my question, do you think in Nepal... There is that political determination now to strengthen primary health care, strengthen public health, deliver universal health coverage.
3: You know, I mean, I wish I could speak for my politicians, you know, like uh, all <laughs> it, of South yeah, Asia. <laughs> I, 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 think, I, I think, of course, we, we're all, you know, in it together and we'll all say this is important. You ask any politician here. They'll say, yeah, we're, we're you know, we're driven to do this. But can we implement this? It's like so many rules are written in our part of the world, you know, but none of them, none of the rules are implemented. It's the implementation that
0: comes. Okay, Buddha, I'll come back to you. Srinath, uh, then Biraj, then I'll I'll go back to uh, Buddha. Uh, Srinath. I am a supporter of universal basic income.
1: And particularly Mm. where it helps to overcome some of the difficulty in access to some of the social determinants of health, like nutrition, et cetera. But one of the big challenges, whether in health or in nutrition for that matter, is if there is a great deficiency of supply, even if you give an universal basic income and try and promote demand-side financing, where are they going to go? If there are no healthcare facilities, where are they going to get the healthcare from? If if the healthy foods are high-priced and unaffordable, even the universal basic income is not going to enable them to get good nutrition. So yes. this, you need both demand side and supply side measures to go hand in hand. And we know that in a lopsided system, the private sector will exploit it.
0: Yeah, that's whatever what the price what, yeah,
1: whatever, <laughs> yeah. whatever money was given yeah. in our health financing schemes in India was tapped by the private sector uh, through yeah. all kinds of uh, uh,
0: uh, unnecessary billing and unnecessary procedures. Yeah thanks for A very important point thank you uh, biraj do you wanted to comment uh,
2: I just wanted to add to two points one is that uh, in my part of the country almost sixty million people fall back into poverty because of medical expenses so supply side shortage and price gouging by the private sector are two things which needs to be addressed and universal basic income more Cash in the hands so of people does not mean that that cash will actually buy you health, especially when it is so extremely privatized and underregulated. But I also wanted to dig a bit about the solidarity. Solidarity started as the mantra in the first uh, wave mm-hmm. when COVID took off and we heard, we heard all these brilliant words about solidarity. As we are speaking today, Kamran, 60 million. Uh, doses. I think it's 600 million doses. I'm, I'm a little confused. I think it is 600 million doses of Johnson and Johnson vaccines are going to go to Western Europe, to the richest part of the world, being manufactured in India. <laughs> I understand last year also South Africa manufactured vaccines which were sent back to Europe and uh, Northern America. So, If we have one part of the world holding vaccines and some of us waiting forever for our first dose, I think solidarity is a bit rich, as an English term, to be bandied around in the global health.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, let's just make a, a distinction. I mean, the solidarity you're talking about is international solidarity to try and tackle the pandemic, to reduce inequalities, to reduce disparities. Let's come back to that. And it's very clearly manifested in vaccines, as you've described. Uh, just just, in case, just to be absolutely clear, I mean, Srinath, you were talking about the WHO solidarity trial, which is what you've been involved with, <laughs> which is you know parallel to the recovery trial that Buddha's been uh, working on. Um, this issue of vaccines, I mean, it's, it's very interesting, very emotive and very kind of demoralizing to think that there is just, this gross vaccine inequity globally that many rich countries can't see that by providing vaccines to poorer countries, by increasing vaccine uptake in those countries, that even if you do it selfishly, it means that it makes your own population safer, healthier, reduces the the chance of of new variants emerging, uh, helps the whole world get back to normal more quickly. Um, But one that's we know that's a reality it needs to be addressed nobody seems to be addressing it properly you know and and one of the ways to address it is to waive intellectual property to provide provide technology transfer to provide manufacturing support now india is a very interesting because india as you say does already have that manufacturing capacity you've been manufacturing the az oxford vaccine you've also india's got its own vaccine yet there's this anomaly, as you've described, Biraj, of India exporting uh, all of these vaccines. I presume that's because of contractual arrangements, or is it because of the commercial advantage? Could you just tell us a little more? I mean, soon I'll perhaps begin with you, then go back to Biraj, how that's happened. And we'll ask Buddha as well, how that situation is in, in Nepal. So now that, how does that anomaly arise? Because it seems India has the capability to manufacture the vaccines, but is exporting a very large number of them. Well, India
1: has a large mag- vaccine manufacturing capability. It has developed some vaccines on its own and has trialed them. It has also been licensed by other country vaccine developers to manufacture In India and mostly for the international market but certain amount of it has to stay back in the country too.
2: Hmm.
1: Now the question of course is that how many vaccines can be produced and at what scale and at what speed in India and how much of that can be actually made available on a prioritized manner to the people of India and how much can be actually supplied to others as well as a part of the global solidarity or as a part of a commercial venture. Uh, India started a little late in the vaccine trials and vaccine uh, certification process. The mRNA vaccines were already licensed in US and Europe Uh, by the time India's own vaccine regulators started giving the green flag to two vaccines in January and that too on the basis of some incomplete data. But by that time, the first wave had subsided, and it was wrongly perceived by many in the policy-making circles, as well as in the public, that India would not have a second wave. The idea that herd immunity had somehow descended like a magical cloak to envelop the people of India in protection, had misled everybody, or most of the people, and though some of us protested against that. Uh, and it was felt that much of the vaccines could be prioritized for people either who are considered essential workers or people in the vulnerable age group of 60 and above or those with comorbidities above 45 years of age. And the rest of it could go into the international distribution partly as a gesture of uh, sort of um, global solidarity, uh, what can be called vaccine diplomacy. Uh, that's also part and parcel of uh, uh, the current diplomatic negotiations internationally. Uh, and uh, secondly, uh, also as a part of uh, the commercial export. But it was when the second wave struck with such great ferocity and people started saying, what's happening? Why are you not protecting our own people? Then the government of India clamped down on exports. And now that the second wave is over and that appears that there is a steady decline of cases, I think the government of India has decided to lift the restrictions again. And now there are many more vaccines which have now been trialed in India or have been licensed for manufacture in India, which are likely to enter the supply chain uh, in the coming weeks. So there seems to be a sense of comfort at the moment. We'll have to wait and see how long that comfort will last, whether a new variant will emerge to jolt us or not. But I think at the moment, India is again now stepping up the international supply chain because it wants to be seen as a very important major global player. So how much will remain in India? How much will be prioritized for the Indian people? How much will enter the international supply chain? Uh, and particularly to countries in Africa and elsewhere where... Uh, very few people have been vaccinated. I think those are partly political decisions and partly commercial decisions.
2: So again, when this history of this particular pandemic is written, I think how India messed up the vaccine order. It, it, at least the government placed orders too little, too less, and too late. So The manufacturing hub of the entire world did not just endanger its own population, it also endangered other low-middle-income countries where we were the only hope. Having said that, I think vaccine nationalism has also played havoc. There was absolutely no necessity. Science is all about collaboration. Science is all about doing together. So this nationalism was not necessary at all. And the myth-making, we've also seen pseudoscience and myth-making from uh, merciful virus in the first wave to now wanting a nationally uh, developed vaccine and and wanting forcing people to be vaccinated with that when third phase third phase trial data is still awaited publication and peer review is still awaited is also an issue. But I also wanted to say something which has not been in the m- public domain as much as it should be. Dispo van, the largest syringe manufacturer, has just alerted that now we're going to be facing syringe shortage. On a normal year, India consumes Mm. about 600 million syringes. Thanks to the COVID vaccination, we need about 2 billion syringes. Government of India is Mm. yet to place a pre-order for the year coming ahead. So first we messed up on vaccine shortage. Now we'll be messing up on syringe shortage. Honestly, I mean, is this some (laughs) satire playing in
0: front of us? So yeah. we've had oxygen shortage, vent- ventilator yeah, yeah. shortage, vaccine shortage, okay. now it's syringe shortage. Okay. On oxygen yeah. shortage,
2: I just wanted to make yeah. a very quick point.
0: Okay, then I'll go is, to Buddha. Yes,
2: absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the there is a problem in monetizing everything, looking at essential public goods and monetizable com- commodity. Let's not forget that in the fir- second wave, in the first fortnight of second wave, Uh, There were a lot of media reports that India also exported massive amount of medical oxygen to neighboring countries. Can Mm. you imagine the absurdity and the irony of it? When your own citizens were gasping for breath, you thought monetizing oxygen is a great idea, monetizing medical oxygen. So I think there's a fundamental issue about a public policy which thinks everything, essential public goods, are monetizable commodity. That also... Mm. Is something that we need to scrutinise more, write about more. So again, a lot of it goes back to journalism—the the kind of discourse we should be generating around some of these topics. Yeah.
0: Okay. Very important points there, Biraj. Thank you, Buddha. Uh, I mean, Nepal, as far as I understand, doesn't manufacture its own vaccines. Um, you're relying on supplies. How how is, Nepal, how is Nepal coping?
3: So what happened is that we were all overjoyed, as as uh, Biraj uh, mentioned. You know, like uh, we got these vaccines from India after, I, I think, when India felt that that there was no, uh, you, you know, that the second wave wasn't going to happen, as, as Dr. Srinath already mentioned. And, and all the healthcare workers got the Serum Institute of India, AstraZeneca, Oxford University vaccine. We were vaccinated. We were very thankful. And we uh, from Nepal said, we want more and we put, send in money. But then, uh, you know, then the, then, then uh, the, Uh, You know, the uh, Delta variant happened, I think, in India and, and, you know, so the vaccine supply stopped. And so here we were, you know, like we, we thought we were off to a great start, thanks to India. And some, you know, this is, it's, in a sense, it's great that we're between India and China and Nepal, you know, so so China is sending us these vaccines, you know, which, you know, may uh, have shown that they clearly uh, also protect you from severe illness, you know, at the end of the day, that's what counts, right? So now this, we're... We, we are now buying the Chinese vaccine and, and and vaccinating most of Nepal with Chinese vaccine. We're eagerly waiting for in uh, Serum Institute of India, which has increased its supply and, and we will soon be getting this vaccine. So, and there is very little vaccine hesitancy here. And there's also very, you know, people are wearing masks. It's like, you know, something that the phenomenon, if, if this had happened 50 years ago in the UK or USA, I think we're we're doing that. At least in Nepal, there's everyone's you know like lots of people wearing masks. At least in Kathmandu Valley, and we're getting there's no vaccine hesitancy, and we're waiting. You know, so we have the Chinese vaccine right now. We're waiting for the uh, Serum Institute of India vaccine. I
0: just want to go around all of you now and say, um, just a quick kind of summing up. What are the you know what's the way forward here? Um, uh, from from each from the perspective of each one of you, um, just a few bullet points, uh, and then um, and we um, I begin with uh, Srinath.
1: Well, firstly, I believe it's important for us to recognize that the virus is not going away. That it's foolish to believe that we can completely exorcise the virus. The virus or new variants will continue to visit us but we need to build the best population level of protection, partly through effective vaccination programs, and also ensuring that some of the public health lessons we have learned are going to be implemented. And while strengthening our public health systems and healthcare systems, we need to see that some of the social determinants of health, which have perpetuated and accentuated inequities are addressed as well. We have seen different kinds of responses authoritarian regimes, who initially felt that they were very successful, but later on have not managed to maintain that success and are continue to be challenged. Mm -hmm. We have seen better responses from egalitarian countries, where despite the problems, their citizenry believes in them, rather than in fake news. Mm. So I think there is a lesson for democracy as well. And by democracy, I do not mean merely representational democracy. I mean, participatory
0: democracy. Yeah. So, sure, thank you. Viraj. Uh,
2: um, so, I'll pick up from that. I hope uh, this virus teaches us solidarity in practice and letter and spirit, both intra country and globally. I hope uh, we, I mean, we had wars. We actually had Israel bombing Gaza Strip. We also had wars, right? in the mm-hmm. middle of a humanity, a pandemic a war to save the humanity. So I really hope budgets go to what really matters, that is healthcare, education, and public goods are not monetized. I hope that is what the virus teaches us. I hope we can reclaim journalism. Journalism is a public good, reportage on what matters. And I hope Research also happens in under-researched areas. I know BMJ has standing has been standing tall on looking at social determinants and not over medicalizing and over clinicizing everything. So, mm-hmm. as a parting word, I want. To tell, there are gaping holes of areas that need to be researched and reported on. One is when your country government is hell bent on undercounting and not even giving the dignity of a statistic to your loved one as a dead person, what are the additional paperwork, additional challenges that you face? We have, been, we have become a female-headed household. I'm now collaborating with a bunch mm-hmm. of journalists to report on what is happening in an extremely patriarchal sexist society where bureaucracy and succession laws are all tilted towards demand. What, how do female-headed households mm-hmm. navigate both the post-death paperwork and also their own lives? So I hope there's more research on that. And I, I really hope the virus lets us reset the world into a better world rather than uh, carrying on with business as, as usual and 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 uh, yes I mean that that should be a uh, parting gift and I hope much more scrutiny and a little less um, reverence and credentialism so even in mm-hmm. in, in the public health the Brahmanism of doctors is challenged and primary health care and paramedics and nurses get more respect and more protection and for the kind of phenomenal stellar role that they have done. So not just, not just, um, not clinicizing public health, but also uh, tilting the the brahminism and the inequity and the stratification of the system also. I really hope hope if we do survive this virus and we exchange notes one year from now, I hope we can see some of this actually play out.
0: Viraj, thank you for those thoughts. Uh, Finally, Buddha.
3: So, uh, you know, I, I think that we should uh, uh, be ready for another pandemic. you know, Like I think this is this is not the end of pandemics this will be. And, and I think that we should be overprepared rather than underprepared, especially our part of the world, where, where, where resources are very low. You know, and not believe in false things like, like you know, false herd immunity and, and get carried away uh, on baseless science. I, I really think that, you know, we should be thinking about another pandemic that will come around. And I think some of the things that we, we're we doing right now, like washing our hands several times and, and wearing masks, uh, you know, I, I think some of these things can be retained, especially for our part of the world, where, um, you know, unhygienic practices lead to the, you know, the disease like typhoid that I work with, or even, as you know, and and, and tuberculosis, wearing this mask. You know, I, I think there's some, some good things that may come out of this that will give us pause. You know, like typhoid admissions to hospitals all over South Asia are, have gone down. Now, that, that, there are a lot of things that, have, that, that, that uh, have factored into this, but, you know, like maybe one of the things is washing our hands will take care of a lot of fecal oral oral contamination diseases, wearing masks. You know, I mean, we have to acknowledge that there is lots of these infectious diseases here than where you live, comrade That's it for me. Thank you very much. Uh, unfortunately, uh,
0: we're out of time. Uh, I'd like to thank Srinath Reddy, Biraj Swain, Buddha Bosnia. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Uh, I've learned a lot um, and I hope you'll join us again for a future podcast on South Asia. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or all other major podcast platforms so you don't miss out on the next one. I'm Cameron Abbasi. Thanks for listening.